Experiment Nation, I'm Romil, and this is Adventures in Experimentation. Our panel of CRO professionals leverage their years of experience in UX and conversion copywriting to field common CRO questions. If you are new to the field, or even if you are a veteran, you'll always learn something new. Hello everyone. Welcome to another episode of Adventures in Experimentation, where CRO experts answer questions that they get. On today's episode, we have Eden and John, and I'll let them introduce themselves. Hi, everyone. Nice. Thanks to see you here. If you're joining us for the first time, welcome. And if you're joining us for the second time, welcome. Uh, uh, yeah, great copy there. Um, I'm, I'm Eden, a conversion copywriter, and I'm also a growth mentor. I've collaborated with Positive John on a few things and Rommel as well. And uh, we're just looking to answer some really burning CRO questions. How's it going, everyone? It's Positive John here, adding value to today's experimentation discussion from a growth perspective and dropping some extra lines regarding market performance here and there. So before we start, I need to ask, um, Eden, what's the temperature like where you're at? It's actually, it was 21 Celsius today. It was, this is a really mild winter. It's winter and it's 21 Celsius. Yes. Yes. Celsius. 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 I look, I I came from Melbourne where our winters were like zero, minus one, minus two, (laughs) you know, and and up here and it's like 21 degrees and it's winter. I'm like, yeah, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine with this. So John and I were, were, we were talking just before this and um, he was saying it was really chilly there. I was like, what, what was it, John? Seven? Minus seven? Exactly, Romo. Can you believe minus seven? I just want to say my Brazilian body is not ready for this kind of temperature, man. It's, this is, this hurts. <laughs> <laughs> I was so, born... how, cold is, how cold is it in Canada? So I was born and raised in Canada and uh, it, it's minus seven here, but it feels like minus 14 and I, I can't handle it. Uh, so... Uh, yeah, I, I don't know why I'm here. Um, I can't leave, obviously, at this point. But uh, <laughs> yeah, it's cold and I don't love it. But I, I appreciate the cold because it uh, essentially ensures that we don't have venomous snakes and scorpions like they have in Australia. Um, so yeah, I'll, I'll take it for a few months of the year. Um, yeah. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> Especially where you were... Uh, Everywhere in Australia, they have the worst, the most deadliest snakes uh, alive, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, they're like the, the top 10 like deadliest animals like in the entire world, from snakes to spiders to jellyfish to you name it. Oh, it's right, the jellyfish. I forgot <laughs> about like, jellyfish. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right, so let's jump into it. Uh, let's pull up a question from a growth mentor. Um, let's see here. We are redesigning an important conversion funnel. We need a review from an expert and suggestions for analytics setup. So um, either one of you can start, but uh, be good to know. How do you guys usually go about this after having you know, your experience in the industry? Uh, John, you want to kick this one off? Of course. So redesigning an important conversion funnel and then a mentee usually books a call for suggestions, fresh eyes, or uh, questions regarding analytics set up to me. Uh, I want to share, of course, a little bit of how I'm doing this in Growth Mentor, but first I need um, a a disclaimer here. And the disclaimer is basically us taking it with a grain of salt that under a Growth Mentor setting, um, you know, the mentor, me, Eden, we usually have a limited amount of business context, right? Because it's a half an hour call 
And even though in my sessions, I always send uh, some strategic questions beforehand so I can grab a little bit, uh, a little more context about the problem that they're trying to solve, uh, it's, it's never enough. And it's very different from when I'm an experiment owner for a conversion program and I'm doing that process, I'm running that exercise, or when a business brings me as a, a business consultant. I still think it's relevant to share a little bit of that experience because it might ring a bell, it might spark some different points of view from people listening to us who do similar exercises from a consulting point of view, for example. Starting with an overview, I developed this quick system that mentees seem to be happy with it and I split into three steps. Basically, I tried to get three sessions to make it more complete. The first one involves about, you know, me going through the page with the mentee, doing a screen share, uh, sharing my gut feelings, you know, my reactions on spot about the page. So, so John, just quickly, uh, what are some of the things that you're saying? Are you going through the site and pretty much saying things that you notice from uh, an experimentation slash growth perspective, or are you pretending to be the, you're pretending to be the target audience? You know, with more mileage running analysis for multiple clients, I feel more confident on my gut feeling when it comes to heuristics and giving suggestions on design solutions and messaging. Uh, and I like to clarify this idea of gut feelings with, uh, I have this rule of thumb. It's a passage from this book, How to Take Smart Notes, that suggests that gut feeling is not a mysterious force, but an incorporated history of experience learned through numerous feedback loops of success and failures. Uh, so this adds more context to what good feeling actually means to me. And I try to explain it this way um, for mentees. I also suggest that, you know, this screen sharing moment works almost as an over the shoulder user test for them, because I try the most to not look much into their websites before the call. So I can get the best on spot reactions to them uh, even though I'm, I'm most of the cases, I'm not the best target persona, but as a trained eyes marketeer, if you will, uh, I can provide relevant suggestions that they're generally happy with. So now that you've gone through the site and, and you, you've um, uh, you've basically uh, called out the things that you've seen using your you know your experience, uh, what do you do next? The second session usually involves okay. Remember all of those gut feelings that we took note how could we do um, research or what types of research would help us adding evidence on those gut feelings so we can prioritize things better. And the third one, the, the third and last step uh, usually involves more commitment with the mentee, but we run a more frameworked exercise. And basically I've been exercising a lot with the user psyche analysis from Darius Contractor, which is basically a qualitative view of a conversion funnel. So just, just I wanted to get a little bit of color there where um, as you're getting all this research, how do you make sure that you don't miss any of the things that you noticed during your um, your, your first pass in the first round? The, are you recording this session? Is Who's taking notes? Uh, how, how does that work? How I make sure I don't miss anything? This is an important question. Uh, I nowadays consider myself a professional note taker after reading this How to Take Smart Notes book. I love that one. But I honestly start my sessions usually suggesting to the mentee, like, what do you think about us recording this session so we can overlook a little bit of notes? 
uh, and we focus on what's important here, which is understanding your, your challenge, your objective, you know, your expected outcome from this uh, conversation, half an hour conversation again. Uh, I'm curious to know, Eden, what exactly do you do for your calls? Are you always taking notes? Are you suggesting recording? Yeah, absolutely. So the same, the same idea here, I usually record the calls. Either I record, I record them myself and then I share with them after or I let, uh, I let the mentee record them as well because it's just, it just lets you immerse fully in the call. Um, and it, so you don't have to worry about scribbling pages of notes and then worrying if you miss something while you were taking the notes. And, you know, because like you said, you only have half an hour to speak with them, which is not a great deal of time when you're dealing with so many different elements at the at the same point. So we usually follow up and then we follow up in the chat if there's anything else, um, if there's any other major takeaways or things that we discussed that we need to follow up on afterwards. So just have you ever, and this is, you don't have to tell me, but I'm really a, a very curious person. Have you ever gone through your process, went through the site, like open it up and you, you mentioned that you don't really uh, look things up before uh, the session. So you're looking at it for the first time. Have you ever seen a site that made you go, what the F? Um, oh, this is going to be a long day. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yes, it, it does happen. Um, often it's because, um, you know, one of, the, one of the things for business owners as well, they like to do, um, they read, they, they're often very well versed in things like best practices from a CRO perspective or from a marketing perspective or even from a messaging perspective. Like they know they have an idea about the right thing that they should be doing for their site, but they try to do all the right things at the same time. So <laughs> or the website looks, it's so, there's so many bells and whistles on the website that you can't even tell, like it's really hard to, to figure out who they are and what they do, or that it's so pared back because they're trying to make it so minimalist that you have no idea who they are or what they do um, for the second you get on the website. So actually with, um, so with regards to these, I do actually usually go through the website really quickly to get an idea of what questions I would like to ask the mentee on the call as well. But then I, I really like to walk through with the mentee and the website at the same time, simply because there's more information, you can get a lot more information from there. And I and building off your points, John, as well, um, things that I like to do, because usually they're approaching me specifically about messaging with regards to conversion optimization, so primarily about the copy and a bit of the UX as well, um, and some of that de the design solutions in a, and as that all integrates together. Um, so one of the things that we figure out is that I also like to ask them things like where where the traffic is coming from, what did they see, but were they you know is it, are they sending paid traffic to this page? Is it organic primarily? How are users getting that? What kind of messages or content? Are uh, people seeing before they get to they get to the page or get to the site? What's their likely stage of awareness and things? If they have an idea, um, to actually try and figure out more as to if this page is really serving their needs and if the if the traffic that is getting to this page is able to there's if there is enough information for them to make a decision or to take action, take the action that we want them to take, or to make to help make a decision about the about the business or about the company. I actually want to touch on that where you you raise a really interesting point where you asked about the traffic that comes to the site. Um, how would you go about this an analysis uh, to cover all the different types of users that go through the funnel? Are you um, pretending to be <laughs> each one of these? Uh, I'm kind of curious how that would work. Let's say you had new customers, old customers, old customers, existing customers. Um, 
those are like shoes and those are like, you know, different things. Um, how does analysis like this uh, take into account all the different um, segments, audience, personas, however you want to phrase that? Well, that, re that really depends. Um, at, in any given time, uh, one of the major principles that, you know, we have in copywriting is that you try to, you try to create a page or you try to create messaging specifically for one reader, for one reader, for one kind of audience segment. When you try to mix too many different messages and too many buyer personas on a single page, it just gets messy. It doesn't matter, it, you know, it really doesn't matter um, how well you can almost segment them out on the page. It just gets really messy in terms of trying to find a message that crosses all these different groups of people and meets them all at exactly the same level as they should be met. So we really try and focus the page for one type of user or one type of, uh, or one stage of awareness that we're focusing on. Or is it, for example, just at least knowing what stage of awareness they're most likely to be when they're coming to this page. And then what's their stage of awareness supposed to be by the time they reach the end of the page? If they they decided that they love the page so much and they read all the way through or they absorb all the information, what's their likely stage of awareness to be by the end of it? So this raises the question where uh, one page, one message, I think that makes a whole lot of sense. And uh, a lot of folks try to push for that. But in terms of a, a homepage, let's say, where um, it is going to be the landing page for a lot of organic um, for different types of people. How, how would you take that into account where you might be having to address a lot of folks? How do you figure out the messages in the order? And I know we're kind of deviating, but I'm, I'm really curious to, to see what you think. Yeah, absolutely. Well, this is something that we worked on um, while I helped out Wes Bush from the Product Lead Institute when they were redoing their homepage. Um, so because they have few different people coming with different levels of knowledge with regards to product led growth, that they were all coming to the same page at the same time. So really there, it, it, it's, it depends on the business. It depends on the business model. It depends on the niche. It depends on the type of audience as well. Um, but really kind of two core ways to structure a homepage, for example, is, uh, one of them is treating it like a signpost. So, you know, someone comes to a crossroads and there's a signpost standing there and it's like this way, you know, you can get to this information by taking right, you can get to this information by clicking here. So um, and that's something that usually suits a lot of different audiences. Whereas if it's specifically, if it's a product, if it's a SaaS product, or if it's, um, sorry, if it's a SaaS or if it's an e-commerce store, you can actually almost treat the homepage like a landing page and have all those little pieces of information. You don't need to give them the full rundown and treat it like a full, uh, mm -hmm. heavy, long-form landing page, but you can treat it as a fact of the landing page by that they should have enough information by the time they get to the bottom of the page to make a decision. And so then all the other pages are just are almost additional benefits. Adding my five cents of value on this homepage discussion, I'm currently running two uh, homepage experiments into two different products. One of them works exactly at this signpost that Adam mentioned before. The other one uses the concept of the next best action. Let me drill down a little bit into the specifics. The one that acts as a signpost, it's one product that we're currently developing the second most important persona for the business. Right. So uh, historically, we've been targeting this number one persona. But right now, because of market expansion, we started noticing that, OK, for markets outside the US, that secondary persona might be more powerful by 
any factors. So the test basically involved adding, okay, you have your primary CTA, which still targets the primary persona, but above the fold, you now have your ghost button or your secondary CTA, and we're testing, it's an ABCDEF as far as I understand, so there's a lot of traffic involved in that experiment and all the statistical considerations to get meaningful results. We're actually running that with CRE, and the test has been uh, the test so far has been very interesting, giving us directions that okay, developing the second persona that are passing by the homepage is actually very relevant. For the second one that we're using, the second product that we're using, this next best uh, action uh, approach, it's basically informed by data analysis from users. So, getting a segment of from users who land on the homepage what is usually the next best action considering our conversion touch point. So, okay, they usually go to this page here because it's relevant to their journey. Are we able to optimize this for bringing more attention? Uh, let's maybe a CTA above the fold on the homepage to suggest the next best uh, action for the user. So these are two of the fresh examples that I have regarding homepage experiments on my end. Yeah, absolutely. And that's something that's something that's fantastic. And when you can get all that when you can get that much information, that's that's great. I mean, and that the fact that you were able to find that that messaging, that value in the product, that it was that it was the same and then you were able to distill that into two different ways. That's also something you can do. Look, there are there are also there are a lot of different ways that you can structure a homepage as well. Um, one recent one where we did as well, it's um, it's actually for, there were two different audiences completely because the people who were visiting the page need the product and want the product. It was for a SaaS platform. They need and want the product, but they don't have, but they're not the decision maker. They can't actually make that decision. So where at the same time, the people who are the decision makers were not likely to actually be visiting this website because they were higher ups. So we had to balance those two messages, both those types of personas coming to potentially coming to the page, not necessarily for the audiences, but because we knew that the 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 people who were going to be viewing this page would take that information mm -hmm. to their apps to help influence their purchasing decision. So um, that, so we actually had kind of two columns on the page, one addressing the target audience specifically, and then one addressing that's at that kind of secondary audience that what might not necessarily be visiting the page um, if at all but that would give enough information for the audience the core audience to actually take back and empower their um and empower and push it kind of through the process uh, internally I, I really like that example it reminds me of a time uh, many moons ago when i used to work in e-commerce for um, a software company and uh, sales weren't doing super well until we did a lot of user research and, and figured out that those who are purchasing our software, and it was really expensive, it was thousands of dollars, uh, it was never them that we had to convince. It was always the purchasing officer or, or their boss. Um, so a lot of the messaging and copy and um, documents that were on our site were focused towards giving them the materials to make the proper presentation and make mm -hmm. the case that the software makes sense. So I, I love that point, and I think that's uh, that still rings true today. Oh, so, you know, we've, we've taken a little bit of a detour. I'm pretty sure you have a little bit more in your process, John. Sorry to interrupt, but, you know, I, I, let, let's close that up. What's left in your process? 
<laughs> Romil, that was a good detour. But yeah, there's a third uh, step in the process. I'll be brief on this. The third step here basically consists in a more in-depth analysis. So we started on the good feelings on best practices, covered potential research methodologies that would help us to be more comfortable with what we found. And the third and last step, I've been exercising a lot with this idea of the uh, user psych framework from Darius Contractor, his ex-head of growth in Airtable, in Dropbox, absolutely big brain. I got this framework from Reforge. Uh, I exercised a little bit more even leveraging Miro. So imagine like a Miro board with a bunch of screenshots that maps um, the user journey across pages. And we keep adding stickies and try to map this user psych, which is basically the level of motivation that the user have or, you know, potentially have based on our analysis. But we try to map this numerically and see where are the bumps in the road or the friction points in the journey uh, of the user. What I found it very interesting is that usually this qualitative way of mapping um, tends to correlate very nicely to the quantitative drop-offs that we see, for example, in the Google Analytics uh, goal funnel report when well set. Uh, and one of the things that we're sharing with the community, Romil, uh, we're, we're sharing one of the materials that I put together regarding this uh, user psyche framework using the LinkedIn's premium uh, product conversion funnel that I mapped under this um, system, this framework, and we're going to make it available for everyone listening to us today. Cool. That's awesome. Yeah, definitely. Uh, we're going to include that link in the uh, description of the podcast, as well as our webpage. Um, you know, we're, we're here to share our information and, and tools for all our listeners. Um, and so let's let's move on to the next topic. Um, let's see here. Again, from Growth Mentor. So on the topic of getting feedback and collecting data uh, from our users, how do you collect um, information around voice of customer? Uh, let, let's start with uh, Edin this time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I know we were just briefly discussing this before um, before we hopped on the call, but um, so in terms of in terms of collecting voice of customer data, it's nice to run. I find it's nice to run site polls and things like that, but not everyone likes to answer site polls. I know there's a study. I can't remember where it was, um, and if I find the link, definitely I'll share it in the resources uh, for this. Are you telling me there's people who don't like to answer polls online? Yes, I think. I think. But I'll, <laughs> let me ask you a question. When was the last time? When was the last time you answered a survey or a poll online? When was the last time you clicked yes on a pop up? When was the last time you actually did those oh. things yourself without thinking, "Oh, I'm going to help this marketer out that's trying to collect data on me while I'm browsing the site." I can honestly say this morning because I set up one on my own site, so uh, I, I was queuing. Does that count? No, I guess. <laughs> uh, Joe. And then I agree with you. People don't like answering polls at all. Um, I remember reading something from Nielsen about that. Maybe it's where you saw as well. Uh, but I'm taking the blame. I feel like I'm just too positive navigating online. Uh, I remember myself answering just in a, you know earlier this week a poll from Timeular. They prompt prompted me in the product is the software that I use for time tracking, and they're pretty awesome. I feel like helping. <laughs> But that, that actually speaks to the bias, right? Well, 
so so that so that's the thing so the idea is un unfortunately as much as it's useful for us and this is, this is part of a huge of a bigger discussion in general if you're looking in terms of user experience it's like pop-ups of any kind do people really like pop-ups do people really like engaging with on-site polls i'm not here to challenge it because i'm not gonna we're not gonna unpack all of this because that's a really deep rabbit hole we could go down um but if you can collect data that way, you have enough traffic coming to the page and people are willing to respond, that's fine. One thing we also find though that people that tend to respond to these, they might be of a certain type of personality or they might be like you posited, John, they might be like, like to help out. They don't have a problem answering, but whereas it might only give us a small segment of actual user data or actual voice of customer data from a certain type of customer in terms mm. of their personality or in terms of how they approach life rather than a wider um than a wider kind of approach again this is this is with all kind of um, user testing you have to you are going to be in meeting with certain types of people because they're the only ones who respond to this kind of thing most people will not be you know will not be inclined to respond mm -hmm. or participate simply because or they be not because they don't want to just because it's part of their daily life they're rushing they're reading through this they're doing this they have they have other things that's better to do it's not it's not an insult it doesn't mean that it doesn't work it just in terms of the, the overall user experience you know this page what this this page this poll is this one tiny 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 section of their entire enormous long 24 hour long day um mm -hmm. and just, there's there's actually I had a, a story related to that, which is interesting that you brought it up because it reminded me of the pain where uh, we did do surveying, we did uh, on-site, we've also did email, and we tried different mechanisms, um, and we essentially tried to figure out, you know, what the cost, what our target audience wanted, and we found a lot of responses in one channel, which was email, um, and we ended up. Uh, designing features and even a, a whole subscription plan around that, and we had like. It had to be ten thousand responses. It was it was um, it sucked to read, but you know uh, it's all good. So when we launched this um, product, we found it, it fell flat, and of course that's not 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 great. Um, only in post analysis, kind of like a postmortem, like why did this did this not work? We figured out that the demo behind the email and the uh, on site and the app and all that were different. So those who answered emails skewed towards like well above 60 they had the time they were tired um so they were like this is what we want and those that use the app and the website were much younger and didn't have time for this jazz and the stuff that we were talking about did not resonate with them so um so not only is it like this bias in terms of the type of people who would answer these um answer these uh these polls it's a, a lot about the channel as well uh, you have to think about you know, what is the platform that they're on? And is this going to skew in terms of a certain type of uh, uh, person? So, yeah, yeah, that, that, that was great. Yeah. Um, John, do you have anything uh, to add on that? Still on the more tactical side, and I'm curious to get some feedback from, from you both. Uh, I had very good results running polls in the thank you page. Of course, like e we're talking e-commerce setting here what almost held you back from purchasing or subscribing from us today uh, i really like this one very insightful in most of the cases that i tested with it and if not mistaken i this first came to me i first crossed with this question from avinash kaushik book uh, analytics 2.0 
um, anything that you guys can share about using this particular question? I usually end up doing is we actually conduct one-on-one -on -one customer interviews as well. And that's one of the questions that I ask, um, that I ask them as well, uh, face to face. And you get, you get so much rich contextual, um, contextual invoice of customer information data. It's just, it's just incredible. The things, the kind of things that come out of that question. But when I'm hopping on a customer interview, it's usually going to be at least 20 to 30 minutes long. And that's one of the questions that I like to, that I like to ask, because I'm trying to gauge what, again, what was, if anything, that almost, uh, that almost stopped them from signing? Or was there anything that made them hesitate? And that can be, that can be anything. Another rich question that we find is really useful to ask is what was going, what was happening in your business or in your company or in your, in your life, for example, e-commerce, what was happening during your day when you decided to make this purchase or when you decided that you needed help. So you're not, so you're not asking them specifically about, you don't say about, um, you know, what their pain or problem they were struggling with. So they end up launching into this story which shares all this contextual information that otherwise it's that otherwise it's sometimes difficult for people to to type out if that if it's going to take them a really long time to do it or it's going to take them um or it's just it's this long it's this long contextual answer that is just really fascinating you learn all the different things what was the different problems and the pains that they were that they were struggling with and what brought them to this realization, what kind of brought them themselves from this stage of unaware to, to pain problem aware to most aware with high intent. The what was going on in your world is absolutely a great question. It's a lot of value when it comes to customer development. I usually have them either in jobs to be done or in, you know, general surveys. So you've, you've, all, you've all mentioned these great sources of um, ideas and feedback and uh, information. And, and I'm hearing that some of these sessions take 30 minutes and there's a lot of quality writing, but how often do you take this kind of effort on? Is this a continuous thing? Do you do it in one big shot before a lot? Like how, when and how often do you do this? Uh, ideally, you should do it um, on a regular basis. Every couple, every few months, or as as new features get released, or things like that, you should try to you should try to get this information regularly, um, because because it changes, things change, people change, um, customers change, you know the the world around us changes. So we need to understand things, what's happening in that context, and if anything has shifted, even if it's just to confirm what you learnt previously, or to see that you're still going in the right direction, or if anything has shifted in the meantime, socially, culturally, economically, whatever that might also, uh, might also be in the scope that might reflect, um, that might impact on the data. Um, but if it's, if it's for specific projects, um, if, it's, <laughs> if it's for a specific project, usually we do it prior to, prior to a launch or prior to a refurbishing a website or something like that to get that information so that that helps drive the direction of the new design of the new copy of the of the new layout things like that again so i'd recommend people do it as much as possible or if not at least have call recordings that you can listen to have the you know the customer service team record every call if they're speaking with them listen to sales calls listen to the demo calls listen to you know all just try and collect and go through that feedback on a regular basis as well um just to enrich, just to be enriched with, you want it because a lot of it's um, from a messaging and copywriting perspective, a lot of it comes down to semantics. Sometimes it's how people are expressing 
their pains and their problems and um, you know their experience their successes or their failures with the product or products you know whether it's SaaS or e-commerce or anything else um, or with the service so it's it adds it adds just that qualitative um, layer it adds that I just find it adds that extra depth which is just really useful in terms of um, in terms of just moving things forward yeah, talking about interviewing internal teams, uh, talking to sales and customer support is always absolutely gold, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Customer support. I, if there's a head of customer success or a head of customer support, like really, who's answering those tickets? Like as they come in, really, that's who you want to. That's who you want to speak with because apart sales. Yeah, this is I'm biting my tongue while I'm saying this. And you know, sales and marketing are close. Sales and marketing are close to the customer, but who's really close to close to the customer is the customer support. That's who's really really close to the customer on that kind of um, that troubleshooting, that problem solving, that almost day to day level, and that can, you can get some incredibly powerful insights just from that. But the benefit here is not just you're not just collecting on. You're not just collecting for the sake of collecting and seeing if there's something that you can iterate on. Now, this is the kind of information that you can get that might spark ideas for what you can do moving forward, what the company can do moving forward. If someone raises an idea about a product feature or an idea about something or that something in the, the world has changed, you know, I, not <laughs> like the comparison between, between pre-COVID and, you know, post-COVID, like the different things change and how are people dealing with them? So maybe it was a social change again, economical, cultural, something else was happening on in their in their slice of the world, and then that can um, that can help shape which products you release next quarter, or which products you release next year, or any features you might decide to add, and things like that. So you can actually just keep tapping into the customers to help even better the product and to better the company moving forward. It's not just for the sake of um, conversion optimization, but it's just it, it informs product as well. With regards to customer interviews, I usually try to get between five to seven and even closer to 10 if possible. Um, usually a good mix though, look for three to four that are customers who are happy with the product. Maybe a couple of them that are churning and a couple of them that were previous customers and have left for whatever reason. So five to 10 interviewees, that's what you aim for in trying to diversify the people you talk to. That's very nice. Yes, you try again. We you aim you aim for it. You can't always get it, but um, it you get some you can get some really really deep insights as well as to why they left or why they why they abandoned the process. Um, for example, for those who who've left off. From from a tactical perspective, do you? Um, I was I was going to say bribe, but that's the wrong word. Do you have incentive? Uh, for folks to participate, like, is, is what what's in it for them? Is it altruistic, or do, do you motivate them in any way? So that and that's a good question. So we initially try to uh, not incentivize the interviews, see who responds. Um, again, that's kind of that's playing off the altruistic idea, though, of like who answers on-site polls. Are these altruistic people who just want to help out these poor marketers who are trying to collect information? Um, but at the same time, you try to not incentivize it or you incentivize it with something that's not related to the product or service. Sorry, I just dropped it. Um, you incentivize it with something that's not related to the product or service. The reason being because you don't want that, you kind of don't want that to, to try and influence their experience. It's like, oh, so they might, so if they know they're getting 
you know, a special gift or if they know they're getting a, a month free of a SaaS product or something like that in exchange for their time, they might be more will, more inclined to give a positive review or positive, share positive only feedback when you just really want to hear everything. You want to hear the good, the bad and the ugly. One fresh example that I'm running, again, the go-to-market project that we're running with um, SurveyMonkey. We start testing the answer rates by first sending the survey to the best 5% of our email list base, based on open rates, all right? So we targeted those users and we saw that, okay, answer rate compared to answer quality, is this where we want it to be? And how will that scale? Do we have any guesstimation for that? Uh, what I usually do next is um, a $10 Amazon gift card tends to increase answer rates quite a lot. You know, I had good experiences uh, using that tactic, if you want to call it. Uh, but more than a $10 Amazon gift card, I start basically uh, considering buying uh, an amount of users from SurveyMonkey panel uh, to get a better answer rate with better quality of answers. So this is pretty much how, like how I think through the process. Um, like I'm, I'm currently literally doing this for, um, experimentation. So I was very keen listener today. <laughs> it's like, hmm. yeah, yeah. I need to talk to these customers. Yeah, I do. Uh, yeah. Awesome. And that's it for another episode of adventures in experimentation. What did we learn today? We learned that recording your sessions with clients reduces the need for taking amazing notes. We also learned that qualitative research is the key to not just CRO, but for all things business. There's just nothing like the voice of customer. And finally, we learned that no one likes surveys except positive John. <laughs> if you've enjoyed this episode and you think we've earned it, please consider subscribing, joining our experimenter directory, and telling a friend about Experiment Nation. Until next time.